David Nywert. I'm a staff writer for Daily Coast and the author of numerous books on the radical right, most recently, Alt America, The Rise of the Radical Right in the Age of Trump. Extremely is a podcast for anyone who wants to understand and interrupt modern hate and extremism. Hosted by Oren Siegel and brought to you by ADL and American University, these conversations feature expert analysis and fresh perspectives on this global threat and what it might take to stop it in its tracks. We were just talking about the fact that it was before the pandemic that you and I were on a panel on some local government-related conference. They were interested in the latest on extremist trends. It's kind of actually a prescient event. Local governments and extremism, who knew that I think three years later, that would be such an important and relevant topic. You've covered hardcore extremists for longer than most How do you feel like the relationship between extremism and the mainstream has changed over time? Extremism has seeped into the mainstream and has become normalized increasingly. I think pretty much everyone who's been watching this would agree with that. It's particularly right-wing extremism. You know, I started seeing it in 2009 Mm. when I was going to Tea Party events, seeing the Gadsden flag show up. Which, as you know, Oren, in the 90s, those of us who were going to militia meetings were seeing it. their symbol was the Gadsden flag. And it still is the symbol of the Patriot Movement. It's one of those things that flies by everyone's attention, is that ultimately the nexus of all of this driving extremism tide is the Patriot Movement still. And mm-hmm. that's why we see these Gadsden flags everywhere. But it wasn't just that, of course. It was the kind of rhetoric I remember going to a Tea Party gathering in 2009 in Montana and remarking on how it was fundamentally identical to the same kind of meetings I would see in the same towns in Montana in the 1990s run by the militia folks, only now it was under the guise of the Tea Party. And they were selling the same books at the table. They were spouting the same rhetoric. It was the same people up there speaking, including Larry Pratt, one of our speakers that day who, as you know, had a key role in the founding of the militia movement, as they called it, back in the 1990s. He was a participant in the infamous meeting at uh, Estes Park. And it wasn't just that, of course. It was the way I was seeing it being normalized and spread. Groups like the Oath Keepers were gaining really powerful entree into the mainstream through the Tea Party because they were a major Tea Party presence. Right. And I think when people think of the Tea Party, they know that that was probably a movement. It was adjacent to our politics, but still maybe not as front and center in terms of some of the mainstream politics that we have now. How do you feel like that has evolved since Tea Party 2009, pre-Obama to now what we're seeing in the, I don't know, is it post-Trump world or wherever we're at right now? Yeah, no, I think we're still, unfortunately, uh, dealing with Trump. Well, and Trump was, in fact, really the key factor in mainstreaming all of this into the Republican Party. But it wasn't just him, of course. There were a number of GOP politicians who did this, a number of Republican-leaning pundits. I'm thinking particularly of Glenn Beck, Mm. as well as pretty much all of Fox News. 
were leaning into this stuff. They were heavily promoting the Tea Party and then heavily promoting Tea Party politics in the many years after. The Tea Party didn't keep organizing, but it remained extant as a sort of movement in a lot of people's minds, especially very right-wing Republicans. And Trump, I think it was 2011 when he was promoting all the birther material, Trump built his whole political career around fundamentally a sort of Tea Party conspiracy theory, which was the birther conspiracy theory, which, you know, is what propelled him into politics. I've got a video of him in a Fox News interview saying, yes, I consider myself the leader of the Tea Party. That was in 2011. So he was already claiming that mantle. And I think a lot of the Tea Party folks remained skeptical of him until 2015, when he actually started running and then started producing these position papers, particularly regarding immigration, that they just found wildly attractive. And that was when we saw the rush of not just sort of Tea Party patriots and that element rushing to support Trump. But I think it's really important to always keep in mind that these guys don't operate in vacuums. There are always people who are being victimized by them. In fact, I've argued recently that the Washington Post and New York Times assignment editors, instead of sending out hordes of reporters to interview Trump supporters in coffee shops, need to go to those same communities and interview the people who are afraid to even raise their heads in their towns and who feel frightened and intimidated by this wave of thuggery that this tide of right-wing extremism has unleashed in their communities. I don't think people really appreciate how bad it really is for non-conservatives in rural America right now. It's Hmm. really ugly. I, I have a lot of family and friends back there, and they're all keeping their heads down, and none of them dare put a bumper sticker on their cars. Very few of them will post on Facebook about politics. They just all keep their heads down. Do you think it's having a silencing effect on people in their communities? Yeah, absolutely is. And it has the anti-democratic effect, as we've seen with these school boards and these local community authorities that are being confronted by Proud Boys and three percenters coming to their meetings and shouting and screaming at them that a lot of them are just quitting. They're not going to run again. Yeah. Or they're actually being actively replaced by these same elements, and they're succeeding in their communities. We saw that happen recently with the election of a woman who's a three percenter to the school board in Eatonville, Washington, and the woman doesn't even have any kids in the school district. She homeschools them. Mm. Yeah, and she was promoted into that position by another three percenter who was already on the school board. They're displacing people, and yeah, they're having this really profound anti-democratic effect. One of the things that I would love to talk with you about is this idea that I've had for a long time. I've always been uncomfortable calling the patriot movement, the militias, anti-government. I understand why they got named that way in the 90s, because that was the outcome of their activism. That was what they were doing, was that they were organizing against the government. But I didn't really think it caught the essence, the more I spent time with them, with what they were about. And over the years, I've increasingly come to feel this way that they're not anti-government, they're anti-your kind of government. They want to have a government, they want it very much a, a powerful authoritarian government, but they want it to be their kind of authoritarian government. 
I've been arguing and I used to get in arguments with my colleagues at the SPLC about this and they go, yeah, yeah, but it's entrenched. The term's entrenched. We can't change it now. But I always have felt that the term we should be using to describe this brand of right-wing extremism is they're an anti-democratic movement. Mm. I mean, and they would even agree with that. Their byword is it's not a democracy, it's a republic. You have any thoughts on that? Yeah, like the argument that something has been used forever is never a compelling <laughs> argument for me, right? I mean, right. I think as the extremist landscape changes, we need to be able to change how we're referring to it to reflect the realities, right? And so I hear what you're saying. It's a very nuanced point that you're making. Anti-government, it means sort of our general democratic institutions and what we view as our normal government. They want a specific type of government. You would adopt just sort of patriot movement, right? Which is how we, I mean, at least at ADL, I'll say like is, there's yeah. the patriot movement and under the patriot movement, you have militias and sovereign citizens and you so know, on and so forth. I wouldn't necessarily call Proud Boys per se a patriot movement, but they're patriot movement adjacent. They were basically the main force at patriot prayer events in Portland, which I was gathering patriot prayer was explicitly patriot movement. So all the times I was seeing Proud Boys, they were rubbing shoulders with these militia patriots. And they all share the same conspiracy theories. They share a lot of the same politics. They just have, you know, different approaches to it. And yeah, Proud Boys are more explicitly white nationalists, I think, than most patriots are, that sort of thing. So they're important distinctions, but I would call them patriot yeah. movement adjacent. What do you think about, like, I always felt that they were much more clear about what they opposed versus what they were about, whether yeah. it's Proud Boys or Oath Keepers, you know, we're against the radical left, we're against socialism, we're right. against all this sort of so on and so forth. But what are you really for that gets a little more not as clear, right? Well, unless you're talking to Richard Mack, but <laughs> <laughs> right, fair enough. He has a very he has a very specific program, and some of them do have very specific programs. But yeah, for the most part, if you would talk to Trockman or even Greitz back in the '90s, they couldn't really come up with a specific program other than standing up to the new world order. And that hasn't really fundamentally changed even into the Trump years. I don't think that they're really able to identify a positive program. They are against something, and that something is democracy, liberal democracy. Do you feel that the coverage, the news and media coverage of extremism has changed to meet this moment? I was a newsroom guy for 30 years, and my last job was at MSNBC's newsroom between 96 and 2000. Its strategy was Fox Light. And I've, of course, remained a working journalist. I just went freelance. I became a stay-at-home father in 2001. And now we all are, by the way. Working from home. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. But I had the advantage of being very early in the internet business, internet journalism business. This is what I was doing at MSNBC. And I learned how to cut video there. It came in very handy when I was running the Crooks and Liars blog for a few years because we were primarily a video site. But I would just say that I left the business in 2000 partly because I was so discouraged with what I was seeing happening to the profession in terms of the way corporate ownership was affecting our journalistic ethics, what had been a good system of vetting bad information that had existed before became actually a system of bottlenecks for all kinds of information. 
I found by the end of my tenure at MSNBC that everyone was really focused on avoiding the accusations of liberal media bias and running hard in the direction of embracing and employing openly conservative reporters, which I didn't really have a problem with. I mean, I grew up a Republican in Idaho and was always personally a split-ticket voter. Let's put it this way. I believed in the old journalistic edict of the enemy isn't left or right, the enemy is bullshit. <laughs> that was pretty much a sort of foundational operational thing for me. And so when I was dealing with right-wing extremists in Northern Idaho and Western Montana in the 70s and 80s and 90s, for me, it was very clear. I mean, it wasn't really an ideological thing. This was common sense. It was a matter of basic right and wrong. And there were obviously ethical ways of going about doing it and handling it. But it wasn't a matter of political bias for me. It was a matter of, like I say, fundamental right and wrong. I think that sort of ethos got lost somewhere. All I know is that by 2000, I was finding that reporting on right-wing extremists was viewed as an indication of liberal media bias. Editors and producers were just running away from my stories. I was having a pretty hard time selling freelance stories. And, you know, I won a National Press Club Award in 2000 for MSNBC for my reportage on domestic terrorism. And yet they were still shunting me into the back room. And that was pretty much when I said, well, it's time to become a stay-at-home dad. I would say that the sort of upward arc of right-wing extremism really took off between 2015 and 17, and then kind of plateaued during the Trump years. It was still some increase, but the pandemic has just made it go straight yeah. up again. And I think that has to do, particularly what we're seeing right now, is this coalescence of the anti-vaccination world. It's really expanding this conspiracist universe. The anti-vaxxers were always sort of adjacent to this world of conspiracism, but they rarely indulged in this sort of open anti-Semitism and the really sort of ugly politics that are endemic to the radical right. But now, I mean, we just saw in D.C. this last weekend, this real powerful coalescence of it was supposed to be a, a march against vaccine mandates, but we saw white nationalist grapers out there. We saw patriots waving their Gadsden flags. We saw conspiracy theorists waving about just a, a gazillion conspiracy theories. And they were marching with, you know, RFK Jr., you know? Only because JFK Jr. didn't come back yet. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, he's going to run with Trump as, as Trump's <laughs> running mate. It's but, you know, the, the, other, the other thing obviously problematic is the Holocaust analogies that they use. But yeah. you know, I feel like a lot of that discussion has been on how when you compare anti-vax mandates to the Holocaust, you're trivializing the Holocaust, you're offending, yeah. you know, those who survived the Holocaust. There's another thing about that, right? But if you're comparing vaccine mandates to the evil of the Holocaust, what you're saying is we should all be fighting Nazis, right? We should all be fighting genocide. That's and right. if that's so bad that it's akin to the genocide, what it's doing is encouraging people, I believe, potentially to violence. Because wouldn't you do whatever you could to prevent the next Holocaust, right? So in a way, it's worse than just sort of offensive, is that it's basically saying you need to get ready and push back against this evil, which at the same time, some of them actually deny. So it's, it's really all over the place. 
Yeah, well, it actually does encourage violence in the same way that a lot of right-wing eliminationist rhetoric does, which is by saying they want a civil war, they want to do this, they want to do that. They're constantly doing this. And yeah, I mean, the trivialization of the Holocaust, to me, in those remarks, is what's so profoundly anti-Semitic and sick, because, I mean, I hate to tell RFK Jr. this, but the Nazis weren't coming to Anne Frank to give her a vaccination shot. That's right. The realities of what the Holocaust were versus the reality, there's really nothing tyrannical about vaccine mandates. It's what societies have to do to protect themselves from the reality, the historical reality, that pandemics have caused millions of deaths throughout history, and this is our way of fighting them. And it's the only way we have to fight them. And if you don't join in, then you're not living up to the social contract. Has this growth in extremism been primarily a right-wing phenomenon, or have you seen the left grow more extreme and violent as well? I have seen folks on the left becoming more militant. But having actually been on the street, I covered like 18 of these street events involving Proud Boys and Patriot Prayer and all these different groups at which anti-fascists came out. I have to say, first of all, that the supposed violence, inherent violence of Antifa is wildly overblown. Generally speaking, most of the anti-fascists that I saw out there were normal, peaceful folks. There's a little element of Black Bloc folks have always been, in my view, problematic. And I covered the WTO riots in, mm. in 98. So I'm very familiar with Black Bloc and I'm not a fan. But on Inauguration Day 2017, I was at a Milo event in Seattle where an anti-fascist who was standing mere feet away from me was shot. And I was a witness in that trial. And I was shooting that. The night it happened, I was using my phone as a camera and I had it up on a stick and I got a lot of great footage. In fact, that's why I wound up being a witness because some of my footage actually caught the shooters half an hour before they shot. But no more than 45 seconds before that shooting, some young black blocker came up and knocked the camera out of my thing, sent it skittering across the bricks. I went chasing after it. And by the time I picked it up, I looked over and here was this young man laying on the ground. Mm. So I would have had the footage of it and I would have been able to determine who had done the shooting and exactly what had happened much better than the police were able to eventually piece together. We would have had the evidence right there. And as a journalist, of course, it's the kind of thing that you're out there for. And I had had it knocked out three times that night by black blockers. And, you know, they're non-threatening. They just do dumb stuff like that because they think it makes a point. I've never actually been really physically assaulted by any of them, but I have had dealings with them that, you know, as a journalist, you just shake your head and just move on because, of course, you encounter people like that all the time. I'm a very thick-skinned, old seasoned <laughs> reporter. I don't get easily ruffled. So it sounds like, you know, as you were going from reporting job to reporting job, extremism, it wasn't following you, but it was just always there. And you were just becoming really familiar with this. Is right. that how it worked out? Well, sort of. I mean, honestly, it was strategizing about how would I go about building a freelance mm. career? What kind of subject can I write about that is going to provide me with pretty steady stream of stories? And my experience with right-wing extremists was that wherever they went and everywhere that they went, they left behind a trail of human misery, a trail of criminality and 
disastrous occurrences that happened all the time. And the thing that finally made me really decide to make it a beat, because I had wanted to really be more of an environmental writer, which is why I started writing about killer whales at the same time. They're a great environmental story, right? And I kept writing about them, just not nearly as much as I did about writing extremists, because frankly, there was a lot more to write about the extremists than there was about the whales. But not only that, it was after Tim McVeigh set off the bomb in Oklahoma City and killed 168 people, there was a sort of convocation out here in Seattle uh, called by Father Bill Wasmuth, who was at that time the leader of Northwest Coalition Against Malicious Harassment. Our mutual friend, Eric Ward, worked for Bill. This is how I actually first met Eric. We would go to militia meetings together. And Eric was great to go to militia meetings with, by the way. I was this ordinary looking white guy, and here was this large black man with dreadlocks. And my preferred style of gathering stuff is to be a fly on the wall and listen to people and gather information that way. So going with Eric just meant I could do that in spades because he would attract all the attention. I remember Richard Mack talked him up at this one gathering for must have been half an hour. And I was just able to go around and get my pictures and listen in on everybody and <laughs> get my notes and had my story. So Father Bill bent my ear for a better part of an hour talking about what their problems with journalists were. And the biggest problem was that so many journalists would just parachute into these stories, skim off the top, ask them frequently silly questions that they would try to answer the best they could and go on their merry way onto the next story. There were no journalists or very few journalists who actually had continuous deep institutional knowledge and understanding of the subject matter and could bring that to the work that they did. And this is especially important in terms of doing what, is, as I've explained, is I think fundamental to reporting on right-wing extremists, which is to provide context. And at the end of that evening, I said to myself, yeah, I got to be that guy. They need somebody who does that, and I can see myself being that guy. And as it happened, that same year, I was out covering the Freeman standoff in Montana, and I met someone who was really kind of a legend among Northwest reporters, a guy named Bill Moreland. He was the guy who had been there at Ruby Ridge. In fact, he was the first person to type the words Ruby Ridge into a news story. He pretty much gave it the name because he had looked it up on a Forest Service map. And he was actually covering the story well before it became a standoff. But more than that, Bill had been covering the Aryan Nations for years. He'd done all kinds of exposés on Richard Butler. He had been to multiple Aryan Congresses. He was truly hated by all the neo-Nazis in the region. And I got to know him out there in, in Jordan, Montana, freezing our asses off, waiting for the Freeman to come out of their standoff. And mostly we would spend our evenings at Hellgate Bar in Jordan, which was about the only watering hole we could go get a good beer at. And I found out he was this great guy and we became friends and he really kind of shepherded me in how to do this because he was the one guy that I could look to who actually already fit that mold. You know, he was your basic shoe leather reporter who had just been out there and had covered it in person from day one. Bill's always been my model, you know, when these Proud Boys and Patriot Prayer folks started showing up, I knew I had to be there in person to cover it because there just really is no substitute for being on the ground and observing for yourself. I feel like we should end on this. You know, you've seen how right-wing extremism has morphed and changed, how certain things have stayed the same, of course, over all the years. 
do you remain optimistic about the country and our ability to get through this? How are you feeling about the current state and where this all leads? I figure I'd ask you a really light question at the end. I have good days and I have bad days. There are some days when I am very pessimistic. What worries me is the extent to which this extremism has penetrated into law enforcement, because law enforcement is going to be the entity that we ordinary citizens are going to need to rely on to restrain these extremists. And if the cops are sympathetic with them and are extremists themselves, then that restraint is gone And I've also been really blown away by how instead of recoiling and resetting themselves after January 6th, the Republican mainstream has leaned into and embraced this extremism. I don't think this is going to end well for anyone, and particularly the talk about civil war that so many of them are engaging in right now. The the guy at the event in Idaho who stood up and asked, when do we get to use the guns? I know that outraged a lot of people, but as somebody who actually monitors these folks online, I can tell you that that was nothing exceptional. That's actually very ordinary, common rhetoric that's taking place within right-wing circles online all the time right now. And I don't think they can succeed. I'd like to hope not. But God, I'm really afraid a lot of people are going to get hurt. What's the optimistic part? (laughs) The day Stuart Rhodes got indicted was a good day. And I honestly think that if the January 6th committee televises its hearings, that's going to do a lot to bring awareness. I mean, to me, it was, it's was it been distressing how little January 6th has actually penetrated into the sort of broader public consciousness is really an important day in American history. You know, I mean, here in my little community, I would tell people, yeah, my life got a whole lot worse on January 6th. And they would say, why? And this is sort of a testament, I think, to the extent to which Fox News is actually dictating our public discourse. Because, of course, there's no mention of January 6th, except to claim that the FBI did it on Fox News. Beltway reporters actually concede to this sort of approach to journalism, because they're still all afraid of being accused of liberal media bias. I got you to be optimistic, I think, for all of three seconds, (laughs) and then it went right back. The truth is that I think there are things that are moving forward that give me hope. I think the DOJ is probably doing a better job than most people give it credit for on the insurrection case. It is the most complicated prosecution in history, an incredibly complicated case. And I'm just pleased with how they're moving up the chain. And we'll see where that goes. But I think that there are a lot of things that can happen between now and November that can really shape the public discourse in a way that A, does wake the country up, and B, hopefully does, you know, make people understand that This is an anti-democratic movement. There is a war on democracy. It's a very serious war. It's not out in the open shooting war, but they are waging war on our democratic institutions on numerous fronts. There's an inside game with all these state legislatures passing anti-democratic legislation to the outside game, which is ginning up these violent right-wing extremists. That was the game we saw on January 6th. There was an inside game and there was an outside game. And that's the shape of this war on democracy. And I think if people love America and love democracy, and I think people do, I think eventually they're going to wake up and realize that this war is a real thing and that they need to stand up or they're going to lose it. And I don't think Americans want to lose their democracy. I will take that as optimistic a statement as as can possibly be. And also just thank you so much, David, for taking the time to chat with me. Really appreciate you 
talking a little bit about the past and how it's still around us and the lessons we can learn. And frankly, your reporting over the years, I think if anybody wants to understand the ebb and flow of far-right extremism and why it's important and how to deal with it, they just have to look at the body of work that you've produced. So I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me and thank you. Hey, well, as you know, I've always depended on you guys as well. And the ADL has been really an important component of this fight that we're all in. So thank you guys for everything you do. ADL is an anti-hate organization with a timeless mission to stop the defamation of the Jewish people and to secure justice and fair treatment to all. The ADL Center on Extremism is a foremost authority on extremism, terrorism, and all forms of hate. The center investigates and disrupts emerging threats online and on the ground, providing resources, expertise, and education that enables law enforcement officers, public officials, and community leaders, as well as internet and technology companies to identify and counter emerging threats. For more information, visit ADL.org. American University Center for University Excellence, Q, is proud to partner with ADL on this important podcast. Q strives to connect academic expertise with the public on areas of pressing import. This podcast is a project of the Center's Polarization and Extremism Research and Innovation Lab, Peril. To learn more, visit american.edu backslash P-E-R-I-L.